the Bible has a lot of hard sayings. Jesus says a lot of hard things. A hard saying, of course, is any truth we find, well, hard to embrace. Things like Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And sell all that you have, Jesus says, and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. I think all of these would qualify in some ways as hard sayings. As we've seen over the course of the last two weeks, John recorded some very hard sayings from Jesus in the Gospel of John. These hard sayings fall into three different groups. In the first group, we have the claim that Jesus is the bread of life. The metaphor is a hard one to accept. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall, as we said, never, never hunger, and whoever uh, believes in me shall never, never thirst. He says he is the living bread that came down from heaven in verse 51. Presents himself as that which the manna in the wilderness looked forward to. Also, he says that whoever eats the bread will live forever. Finally, and I think probably the hardest of all, he says in verse 53, unless, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Definitely a, a hard saying. There's a second group of hard sayings, and those are the, the claims of deity. The, Jesus claims deity by using this phrase, I am. The phrase is recorded four times in the chapter. Three of them are used by Jesus. As we discussed two weeks ago, the phrase I am is Jesus' way of asserting his deity. He is saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. And he also asserts his deity by saying that he came down from heaven. I am the bread that came down from heaven. There is a third group of hard sayings, and that is on the topic of election, which we talked about last week, or predestination. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then, of course, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. When you put all these things together, the words of Jesus in John 6 are some of the most difficult words that Jesus spoke. So, we're not surprised to discover that the crowds grumbled and disputed among themselves about Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see the grumbling and disputing reach a climax. So, if you would, please stand and we'll read our passage this morning. It comes to us from John chapter 6. And it is the final section here, verses 60 through 71. John 6, verse 60 through 71. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This morning in this passage, we're going to see three responses to the bread of life that challenge us to take stock of our response Three responses that challenge us to take stock of our response. Well, verse 30, verse 60, excuse me, confirms it. The words of Jesus are a hard saying. John writes, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Well, what did they hear? I think what they heard is this discourse or this whole section of Jesus speaking in verses 25 through verses 58. You remember... Verse 59 tells us that Jesus spoke these things in the synagogue. This is a, kind of a large teaching in the synagogue from Jesus. It was this, this discourse or this teaching in the synagogue that these disciples found to be hard to accept. The claims from Jesus that, that he is the bread of life, that he is the I am, that the Father sovereignly draws some to salvation through Jesus are too much for these disciples to bear. This expression, hard saying, in verse 60, does not mean hard to understand. It wasn't that they didn't understand what Jesus said. The adjective carries the idea of hard to accept. What Jesus was saying was not difficult to understand. He was very clear. What Jesus was saying was offensive. That's the idea here. It was impossible for them to accept and to believe. Calvin said, the hardness was in their hearts, and not in the saying. It's their hardness of heart then that will lead them to defection. And this is the first of three responses that we'll see in this passage. In verses 60 through 66, we will see the defective majority. The defective majority. Their grumbling and hardness of heart doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus. John tells us in verse 61 that Jesus knew in himself that they would refuse to accept his teaching. So, Jesus responds to them in verses 61, or the, the second part of 61 through the beginning first part of 64, and Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, is what Jesus says to them. 
Jesus begins with two rhetorical questions. Do you take offense at this? Is the first. Imagery behind the verb take offense is that of a stick holding up a trap. You can imagine in your mind like an animal trap and it has that stick there. When you hit the stick or when the animal hits the stick, the trap falls. That's the picture behind the verb take offense. The idea is something like, do my words entrap you? Do my words prove fatal to you? That's the sense of what Jesus is saying here in his first rhetorical question. Second rhetorical question, verse 62. Then, Jesus says, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which Jesus leaves unresolved. You've heard my teaching and you can't accept it. Well, how about this, he says. If you saw me return to heaven, would you accept my words? Or would you reject my words? What would be the outcome? Furthermore, how can you maintain your unbelief when you see the Son of Man return to heaven? Would such an action break their unbelief? I think we can relate to wanting people to see something from God that would inspire belief. That's what we intend when we share our testimony to people, that it would inspire belief. We're saying, if I show you a changed life, would it make you believe? Or, if I were to explain how God provided for my family, or maybe how God brought me through this horrible trial, would it cause you to believe, or would it confirm your unbelief? Kind of what Jesus is doing here. Again, I suspect you've shared things that caused belief and confirmed unbelief. 1 Thessalonians is an interesting passage. Talk about confirming belief. You can follow me there. I'm going to read a section there if you'd like. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the way the Thessalonians received the word from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because, or why, or seeing that, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I can't think of a better way to hear the word and a a better effect than what the Thessalonians did when they heard Paul speak the gospel and explain the work of Jesus. Quite contrary to what happens in Acts 13 in Antioch in Pisidia, where the Jews stirred up persecution against Paul after he taught in the synagogue. And you remember that, Paul and Barnabas, we read that they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Two very different responses from the Word of God. 
in Thessalonica, the message was received with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And in Antioch, in Pisidia, the message was rejected. Well, why is this so? Why do some accept and others reject? First Thessalonians 4 and 5 again, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has what? Again, here we are, that He has chosen you. Seeing that, or because, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Returning to John 6, Why then did the words of Jesus inspire belief in these, uh, or not, excuse me, not inspire belief in these would-be disciples? Why not? Well, look at verse 63. It is the Spirit, Jesus says, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. There's a hard saying. These would-be disciples are a defective majority because the Holy Spirit hasn't given them life. Remember the words from Jesus in John 3, where he says this to Nicodemus in John 3, verses 6 through 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. That I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a mystery in the wind and there's a mystery in the new birth. Spiritual life only comes as a result of the Spirit's work. Jesus continues, the flesh is no help at all. No help at all. Leon Morris comments. But here we have the limitations of fleshly life that is in the mind. Those whose lives are taken up with material things, things of the here and now, cannot understand Jesus' teaching. People whose horizon is bound by, bounded by the things of earth cut themselves off from his teaching, and their kind of living counts for nothing. Only as the life giving spirit informs us may we understand his words. So then how does the Spirit give life? How does it actually happen that the Spirit gives life to us? Verse 63, the last part of it, the words, Jesus says, that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Bible teaches us that spiritual life, our salvation, comes through the agency or the means of the words of Jesus, his words, the word of God. Remember the parable of the sower, Luke chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. The parable is this, we read, the seed is the word of God. As for the seed in the good soil, remember that's the only one that bears fruit, the seed in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. How about Luke 8, 21? But he said to them, Jesus, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Yes, he has a mother. Yes, he has brothers. But those who are his, those are only those who are his are those who hear the word and do it. James 1.21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to do what? James says, which is able to save your souls. 
Receive the implanted word. 1 Peter 1, 23. Since you have born again, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through what? Through the living and abiding word of God. Again, the Bible teaches us that spiritual life, our salvation, comes through the agency of the word of God, as Jesus says here. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Don Carson writes, One cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words. For truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing Jesus' words. Human beings live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, verse 64, we see the problem is that they have failed to believe the words of Jesus. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. The defective majority is held personally responsible for rejecting Christ. Not because they failed to understand. They understand. It's because they failed to believe. They failed to accept the hard sayings. In line with God's sovereignty, this comes as no surprise to Jesus. As John tells us in the second part of verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew that this majority would reject him. He even knew who would betray him. Of course, that's Judas Iscariot, the supreme example of an unbelieving false disciple who we'll have more to say about later. The last thing that Jesus says to this, these false disciples is found in verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This, very, this verse is very similar to what we studied last week. Again, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and very similar to verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There we have the idea of drawing, and here in verse 65 we have the idea of granting. Verses are very similar in both of them. We have this necessary condition, which we explained last week. There mean, this means something must happen before something else can happen. What do I say? You, you, you don't get your driver's license unless you pass the driver's test. You don't get out of the hospital bed until the doctor says so. Well, you don't come to Jesus until the Father grants it. If you were with us last week, you know that I tried to demonstrate that there's a mystery that exists between human responsibility, and divine sovereignty. How, on the one hand, unbelievers are condemned for their unbelief, yet on the other hand, unbelievers are lost because the Father did not draw them. Well, that mystery is found here as well in this verse. And we're not going to get away from that mystery as we continue to move through the Gospel of John. It's the Spirit that gives life and no one can come to Jesus unless it is granted to him by the Father. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what these verses teach us. Yet, Jesus holds the crowds responsible by saying, but there are some of you who do not believe. Both are right here. Both realities. Barclay writes, when we, when we begin to think honestly about the matter, we are bound to see that at the heart of all religion, I would say Christianity, biblical Christianity, there must be mystery for the simple reason that at the heart of all religion, there's God. 
It's in the nature of things that the the finite can never comprehend the infinite. That the ways of God can never be grasped by, by the human mind that man cannot ever fully understand God. Any honest thinker, he says, is bound to admit that. If we could fully grasp God, then God would cease to be God and simply would be a kind of, he says, outsized or oversized man. Any honest thinker will accept the mystery. Not to belabor the point, and if you were with us, if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to listen to that message, but in the scripture we find truths that convince us of both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They're both here in scripture. And so I accept the words of J.I. Packer, which I really like. He says, accept it, that is human responsibility and divine sovereignty, accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real. He says, put down the semblance of contradiction to the, to the deficiency of your own understanding. It's not that God hasn't communicated the right thing. God has communicated perfectly. It's not that there's any confusion in the mind of God. The problem, that's what I love, he says, put down the semblance of any discrepancy or contradiction in the deficiency of your own understanding. If I don't understand this, it's me. I'm the problem. God hasn't failed to communicate something well. He has communicated perfectly his will. He goes on. Think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that at present you do not grasp complementary to each other. Accept that. That's okay. I don't have to have the answers. I don't have to bend and shape my theology to finally settle this issue. Do you remember Spurgeon's comment from last week? We don't reconcile friends. <laughs> These things are friends. We don't need to reconcile them. Let them both exist. Finally, we come to verse 66, which says, After this, or as a result, in consequence, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The verb speaks of returning to the things previously accepted. They went back to their day jobs. <laughs> they went back to what they were doing before. They left Jesus and went back. Back to the everyday common affairs of their life. Jesus came and they rejoiced. They benefited from his miracles. You remember verse 26. You ate the fill of your loaves. I'm sure the bread was great. Yet these words, they're too much. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? The true test of any army is how it fights when it is tired. These followers of Jesus only stuck by Jesus as long as they received a benefit. As soon as they were challenged to submit to these hard sayings from Jesus, they proved to be fair-weather followers. They were the defective majority. Verse 67 camera angle changes, moves, and we turn to the 12. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? The answer to this question will give us the determined minority. The determined minority. As we'll see, Jesus uses the defection of the majority to contrast the faith of the 12. 
I really like how Leon Morris sets up this passage in his commentary. He writes, this is a passage of tremendous importance. So far in the gospel, enough has been said about the claims of Jesus to make it clear that he was no run-on-the-mill claimant to messianic honors. His claims for himself and his claims on his followers are becoming clearer, and we will see this as we begin to move through. There's going to be more and more opposition in this gospel as we continue to move. At first, people tended to flock around him. It had looked as though he might become the head of a very popular movement. But then, people began to see what Jesus really stood for, and they didn't like it. Preceding sections of this chapter have shown how first the multitude and then some of the disciples were repelled. Now comes the big test. What will the twelve do? That's the question at hand. Jesus asked, you don't want to leave me too, do you? I think this is the climax of the passage. This is where everything in this entire chapter, I would argue, is, 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 is moving towards this moment. What will the twelve do? Will they be like the defective majority? They've seen the, reject, the, the reaction of the Jews. They've heard the hard sayings. What are they going to do? Of course, we're not surprised who becomes the spokesman. Peter, he becomes the spokesman. Morris reminds us that Peter is impetuous, ready sometimes to jump to conclusions, capable of incredible ineptitude, but he is also capable, he says, of reaching astounding heights. And we see one of those astounding heights in his response. Verses 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What amazing words from Peter. Notice he mentions the words of Jesus. Jesus said in verse 63 that the words he spoke were spirit and were life or, and are life as we studied. Peter agrees. The words of Jesus are eternal life. Peter is emphatic in verse 69. We, we have believed and have come to know whatever the case is for others, we the twelve, we have made our decision. Peter states the decision in the perfect tense, which has the force of saying, we have come to a place, uh, we have come to place our faith and we're staying put. We have entered into knowledge and we're going to keep that knowledge. Finally, he's emphatic again in the final clause. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Excuse me. We have, come to, we, we have believed and have come to know that you, he's saying, are the Son of God, the Holy One of God. We believe and, and know that you are the Holy One of God. I like to think Peter is, in fact, pointing his finger at Jesus. I have this idea in my head. Think back to when they met, first chapter of John, when Andrew... Peter's brother came to Peter and declared, we have found the Messiah. Months ago, we studied that. You remember, it was Jesus who looked at Simon, and he called him Cephas. We'll call you Peter. Well, here, Peter is pointing his finger at Jesus and saying, you're God. What an infant faith they had at that time. Now, in the course of a short time, maybe two years, actually, 
but a short time. Imagine all they saw and heard. The water turned to wine, the cleansing of the temple, the healing of the official son, the healing of the man paralyzed for 38 years, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, these teachings, so many more, all that they would have seen and heard. All this reaches a climax in Galilee. The twelve are challenged to affirm their loyalty to Jesus, and the response is in the positive. Lord, where else shall we go? What's the difference between the defective majority and the determined minority? Was it that Peter and the twelve could thoroughly explain how this man, the son of Joseph, came down from heaven? Could they rightly perceive all the metaphorical significance of Jesus as the bread of life? Were they not accosted by the words, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life? Was it that Peter and the twelve could reconcile human responsibility and divine sovereignty? I'm guessing they were as baffled as anyone else. The simple fact is that there's nowhere else to go. In this, we see the loyalty of Peter's heart. It was Jesus who had the words of eternal life. Peter's loyalty wasn't based on understanding, but on his relationship with Jesus. It was Jesus, the person, that drove him to declare, you have the words of eternal life. Barclay writes, maybe a bit overbaked, but he says, Christianity is not a philosophy which we accept. It's not a theory to which we give allegiance. It's not something which is thought out. It's not something which is intellectually arrived at. He says, it's a personal response to Jesus Christ. It's the answer of the heart to the magnet of Christ. It's an allegiance and a love which a man gives because his heart will not allow him to do anything else. Which I would argue is part of that drawing. Where else can we go? I don't understand every detail, but I don't know where else to go because you have the words of eternal life. Such an allegiance is found in the twelve, save one. Look at the last two verses, verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. See the defective majority, the determined minority, and here we have the deteriorating apostate, Judas Iscariot. John has already alluded to Judas in verse 64. When he says Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Although John doesn't record it, Jesus did hand select the twelve. We're not given that account in John's gospel, but we are in the other gospels. And one of those was a traitor. Jesus here calls him the devil. In every instance, when Judas is introduced, he is labeled a betrayer. Judas was a devil in the sense that Satan, the adversary of God, used Judas as a tool to oppose the work of God. We see that actually worked out later in John's gospel. You remember the night before Jesus was crucified, during the Passover, the twelve gathered for supper. 
In John chapter 13, verse 2, John tells us that the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. And then in verse 27, John tells us that Satan entered into him. This fact, however, does not exonerate Judas from his heinous act. Jesus places the responsibility at his feet. And these chilling words in Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Those are chilling words from Jesus. While the deterioration of Judas is unique, and I think it's wrong to squarely compare anyone to such a man, none of us are above a decline of faith. So there's something to learn. Some of us know how the years can be cruel. We've seen too many people part with their, their ideals, with their enthusiasm and their dreams and loyalties. We've seen lives grow smaller and smaller. We've seen the heart shrivel and the love of Christ grow dim. There's a terrible danger in this life that love for God might wane. The life of Judas can teach us anything. It's that nearness to Christ will not prevent us from apostasy. If there's ever a man who had greater privilege and opportunity, it was Judas. J.C. Ryle writes, A chosen disciple, a constant companion of Christ, a witness of his miracles, a hearer of his sermons, a commissioned preacher of his kingdom, a fellow and friend of Peter, James, and John, it would be impossible to imagine a more favorable position for a man's soul. Yet, he waned into apostasy. I suspect there are few here who would confess their loyalty to Christ has been lost. And yet, I suspect there are some who sense a danger in this life. Maurice Roberts writes, There is the very real possibility in every Christian that he will learn to live at a distance from the love of Christ. Our corruption works in us a constant tendency to withdraw from Christ into the shadows. Days and even months can go past in the experience of the Lord's people in which they are virtual strangers to the inward enjoyment of the love of Christ in their hearts. The soul grows callous. Layers of worldliness or coldness, like coats of paint on an old door, overspread the soul till we become accustomed to feeling nothing, enjoying nothing, expecting nothing, knowing nothing of those heartwarmings which are all important to spiritual well-being. He says the next step is that the believer falls into a dead formalism. Prayer is got through as mere duty and routine. The Bible is read either to keep up appearances or to solve the weak voice of conscience. But spiritual exercises are now no longer enjoyed. The soul has no relish for the things of the spirit. The consequence is that new companions are sought who are unfriendly to heart religion. Then corners are cut in obedience to the word of God. Finally, offense is taken at the lives of those Christians in the fellowship who are working with God in the power of godliness. He says, countless believers have declined in this way. I'm sure you've known some. Maybe you feel the danger 
in those words in your own life. What is our response to God? Where do we find ourselves this morning? Where do you find yourself this morning? Is your faith waxing or waning? Furthermore, how can we maintain the determination of the minority? How can we mark out our lives as those who have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Well, as far as I can tell, this passage, the Bible in general, it all, it all begins with an act of faith, with believing. This is the clarion call to us from John's Gospel. It's over and over again we read that. We must believe. Yes, we must believe on the Lord Jesus for salvation, but we also must believe that the Lord will give us a genuine experience of joy and contentment. We have to believe that that's true. Our hearts are always so ready to dismiss the promise of abiding joy. We're always pushing against that. This very chapter, Jesus says, whoever feeds, verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. There's an abiding with Christ. Later in John 15, we'll study this in the future. Jesus will say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Well, do you believe that? That joy can be in you and that your joy may be full? I hope you do. Jesus says it's possible if we abide in him. Jesus wants us to believe that determination can be ours. That joy and contentment and fruit can be a part of our lives. And this begins with faith with believing that these things are true, that they're possible. Can you step out in faith, as Peter did, and declare to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. I have believed and I have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter said, we have believed and have come to know. It seems backwards. It seems right, what seems right is to make sure, then believe. To come to know, then place our trust. Whoever heard of believing in order to be sure? But God's ways are not our ways. As Arthur Pink says, it's impossible, utterly impossible, to be sure of divine truth until we have believed. Psalm 27, 13 says, I believe that I should look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Do you believe that? This is the opposite of human thinking. Man says seeing is believing. But God wants us to say, I believe in order to see. The Bible gives us many hard sayings. This is a hard, there are hard sayings in this chapter. Jesus says many hard things. How many times do we try and understand such hard sayings before we will believe them? 
We have to wrap our minds around the Trinity or the doctrine of election, God's providence or the incarnation. We have to figure these things out before we will believe them. Is it possible that we might not understand until we put our faith into what God has revealed? Peter said, we believe and we are sure. Understanding is granted through faith, this and so much more. Assurance, joy, contentment, peace, so much more. These are the fruits of believing. These are the rewards of our faith. We read this just a couple weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You remember it. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and what? That he rewards those who seek him. We must believe that. It's one thing to say that God exists, but we must also believe that he rewards us. Do you believe that God will reward you with confidence in him? Do you believe that God will reward you with joy and contentment? Do you believe that God will grant you a determined response? As we wrap up this chapter, John chapter 6, as a whole, what is this chapter about? When Jesus fed the 5,000, well, he knew there was going to be a defective majority. He knew that. It actually explicitly says that. He knew who would follow him. He knew who would believe. He knew that some would only seek him for bread, not because he is bread. And it seems a major purpose for this miracle and the teaching that follows is to reveal this defective majority. That is a major part of it. But why? Well, probably for a number of reasons, but I think the best reason is found in verse 67, and I've already made the claim that I believe this is the climax of the chapter. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Everything in this chapter is moving towards this moment. What will the twelve do? What Jesus is asking is this. Have these hard sayings, have they driven you away as well? Is it too much for you? You see, the defective, you see for the defective majority, the hard sayings were a barrier to belief. It was a barrier to belief. They couldn't get through it, couldn't get around it. They left. They turned back. But these hard sayings had a different effect on the determined minority. For Peter and the twelve, the hard sayings were not a barrier to belief. They were an invitation to believe. And that's the thought I want to leave you with this morning. Joe Rigney writes, these hard sayings, call us to see past the gifts from Jesus to Jesus himself. Do we only want what he gives or do we want him? The hard sayings call us to embrace the inestimable worth of Jesus. They force us to recognize that we are starving and he alone is the bread of life. Christian faith is filled with its hard sayings. But if we come to Jesus as uniquely satisfying, if he is the bread of life to us, 
if we believe that we have come to know that he is and have come to know that he is the Holy One of God, then like Peter, even the hard sayings will not deter us. Jesus himself as the living bread will so satisfy our souls that though we still may have questions about the hard sayings, we don't turn aside. We continue to seek Jesus. In other words, he says, embracing Jesus despite the hard sayings is the mark of those who are truly seeking Jesus for Jesus. So then, what is your response to the bread of life? Defective majority or determined minority? Amen.